I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And instead of reading uh, the the text uh, ahead of time at the beginning of the message, we're just going to read from the text as we move along through the sermon. So uh, let me go ahead and, and pray. Father, we pray that you would cause your words to dwell richly in our hearts. We pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, conviction, assurance, transformation. We pray that you would search our hearts and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today's sermon is is about the nature of true faith. There's a lot of faith talk in our world. Uh, Some people seem to have faith in faith. You just got to believe with the emphasis on believing but not on what is believed. Uh, Some people have faith in a higher power or a generic providence or in your lucky stars. And as Christians, we need to make sure that our understanding of faith is biblical. So I just kind of want to walk through uh, Hebrews 11.1 to 12.2 with you. Um, In some contexts, that could be five or six sermons, but we want to just kind of see the panorama of this beautiful discussion about faith. And so we're just going to begin right at the beginning of chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 teaches us about the nature of true faith. Verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The phrases assurance of and conviction of are related concepts. True faith is characterized by an assurance and conviction and inward persuasion that certain things are true. Now, what things is faith assured of and convicted of? The first half of verse one tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In the context of the book of Hebrews, the things hoped for are the things that God has promised to his people. God's promises orient us to the future God has promised us an eternal Sabbath rest, chapter 4, an everlasting inheritance, chapter 10, the city that is to come, chapter 13. God has promised us that we will be partakers of his holiness, chapter 12. God has promised us a glorious resurrection in the age to come, later in chapter 11. God has promised that Christ will appear a second time in order to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, the end of chapter 9. Finally, God has promised that those who pursue holiness and persevere in faith will see the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. To have true faith is to be convinced in your heart and mind that these promises are true and that these promises are yours. The faithful believer is assured that he has a share in the things hoped for. The second half of verse 1 tells us that faith is the conviction of things not seen. 
the two phrases, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, are parallel to each other. And so the phrase, things not seen, is closely related to the phrase, things hoped for, although the two phrases do not have identical meanings. It is often the case that the things not seen are unseen because they are part of the future that God has promised to his people, and the future is unseen. It is not unseen to God, but it is not seen to our natural perceptions. The things hoped for are among the things not seen, but we are convinced that the unseen future things are certain because God has revealed them to us. Most of Hebrews chapter 11 refers to the unseen future. However, the phrase, things not seen, can also refer to the past and present. For example, in verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. We understand that what is seen does not owe its existence to what is seen but instead owes its existence to the unseen word of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, you can scan down, refers to the unseen present. Moses is present. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light is the great sustainer and mighty savior in the present moment of all who see him with the eyes of faith. Hebrews 11.1 teaches us that the nature of true faith is to have assurance in God and in God's character and in God's words and especially in his promises concerning the future. The words assurance and conviction make it clear that faith is not mere mental agreement but is in fact an informed and wholehearted persuasion that God's revelation in Scripture and that His promises are glorious, compelling, and trustworthy. By clear implication, to have assurance and conviction is not a momentary flash in the pan of religious excitement, but means that we, we hold fast to God's promises and persevere in our faith. Those who have true faith don't shrink back but instead stand firm and press on. As Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 tells us, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All told then, Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches us that true faith is an informed, wholehearted, and enduring confidence that God's revelation in Scripture and His wonderful promises are glorious, compelling, and trustworthy, and this confident assurance inevitably produces visible fruit. Going to verse 2 now, we learn about the value of true faith. How valuable is it? Well, Hebrews 11.2, in conjunction with some of the surrounding verses tells us that true faith is so valuable that to have it means commendation in the sight of God and to not have it means condemnation. Hebrews 11.2 says, for by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation or they received their good testimony. True faith is the distinguishing mark of a man or a woman who has God's approval and with whom God is pleased. 
Both before and after verse 2, we learn about a contrast between having faith and not having faith. Go back to the end of chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 to 39 says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you see the contrast? On the one hand, there are the righteous ones who have faith and who live by faith and who preserve their souls. But on the other hand, there are those who shrink back and are destroyed. They turn away from God's promises, and as a result, they perish. God has no pleasure in people who don't truly trust him. The second contrast between having faith and not having faith comes in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Faith is the pathway of offering acceptable worship, of being commended as righteous, of being pleasing to God, and of being rewarded by God. Unbelief, which was characteristic of Abel's brother Cain, is the pathway of offering unacceptable worship, of being rejected as unrighteous, of awakening God's wrath, and of being condemned by God. Those who shrink back and who, like Cain, refer, refuse to heed God's word are displeasing to the Lord. But those who live by faith please God. The next verse says, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. God takes pleasure in those who trust him. After telling us that Enoch pleased God, the next verse, verse 6 says, and without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. True faith is essential to pleasing God. God has pleasure in us when we trust in him and his promises, but he has displeasure in those who walk away. So verse 1 teaches us about the nature of faith, verse 2 about the value of faith, and then much of the rest of the chapter teaches us about the activity of true faith. Hebrews chapter 11 does not commend the Old Testament saints because of their invisible and abstract faith, but instead commends the Old Testament saints because their inward faith was made visible through concrete acts of obedience. Faith itself is operational in the heart and mind, receiving and cherishing God's promises and understanding and embracing God's perspective on all of life. Hebrews 11 verse 3 highlights the fact that faith is operational at the level of your understanding, right? By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Hebrews 11.3 is pointing to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, where we learn that God created and framed the universe by his powerful word. If you trust this foundational knowledge about the universe that God has revealed, then everything else follows as a matter of course. But if you don't trust God's word, then you will construct your entire life 
on an unstable foundation. Having the right starting point. God as creator and sustainer over the universe. Having the right starting point is crucial and you can only truly understand it by faith. Faith is not a leap into the dark. Faith does not mean dropping off your brain at the door of religious fervor. Faith does not mean committing yourself to that which is unreasonable and anti-intellectual. Instead, faith means trusting God's word and submitting your heart and mind to God's testimony, which is the most reasonable course of action for an image bearer of God. But although faith is operational at the level of the heart and mind and understanding, it does not and cannot remain hidden. True faith is lively and active. True faith is expressed through specific acts of obedience. True faith lives in the light of God's promises. In other words, the things hoped for shape my life. The things not seen shape the way that I live today. For believers, God's promises become the framework of our, of our entire life, and within that framework, we walk with God and obey his instructions. God commanded Noah what to do in light of the unseen future. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God commanded Abraham to go to an unseen place as the pathway to an unseen future. Verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God made a promise to Sarah that she would give birth to a son one year later. The promise was made concerning the unseen future. Verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Abraham and Sarah and the other Old Testament saints, they greeted the unseen future from afar and desired it with all their hearts. Verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, which required Abraham to keep trusting God to keep his promises concerning the future offspring through Isaac, even though now Isaac was about to be laid up on the altar. Verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Isaac blessed his sons Jacob and Esau concerning the unseen future. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed his sons concerning the unseen future. When he, when, he, when, he, when he gathered his sons around him before he died, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob said to his 12 sons, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come, the unseen future. Verse 21 of Hebrews 11 says, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Joseph gave instructions pertaining to the unseen future. He believed that many decades later, Israel would actually come into and possess the promised land. Therefore, he gave instructions concerning his bones. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, which was far future, and gave directions concerning his bones. Moses' parents saw a future for their baby boy who was under draconian orders to be killed. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses wasn't duped by the outward prosperity enjoyed by the Egyptians. By faith, he saw the preciousness of God's people, and he believed that it was better to co-suffer with God's people than to co-prosper with the pagans. Verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. When the time was right, Moses left Egypt and he was sustained by the merciful God who was invisible and therefore he was not afraid of the very visible wicked Pharaoh of Egypt. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses trusted God's counsel regarding the, the unseen future when the destroyer would shortly pass through the land of Egypt but would pass over every house with the sprinkled blood. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. In due course, the people of Israel believed that the walls of seawater would continue to hold while they walked through the sea as on dry ground. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Later, the people of Israel believed that obeying God by marching around the city of Jericho was a better military strategy than building siege works. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And Rahab the Canaanite did not take refuge in the walls of Jericho, but entrusted herself to the care of God's people. Concerning the future, she believed that the walls of Jericho would not save her, but that Israel's God would. 
Therefore, she made the same choice that Moses made, to throw in her lot with the people of God. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. From Abel's acceptable worship in verse 4 to Rahab's hospitality in verse 31 and everything in between, the inward faith of the faithful was made visible through concrete acts of obedience. True faith is actively engaged in doing God's will. Faith that doesn't do what God says isn't true faith. Faith that doesn't go where God sends isn't true faith. Faith that doesn't live today in the light of God's promises concerning tomorrow isn't true faith. Faith that doesn't trust God's word but instead is duped by outward circumstances is not true faith. Faith doesn't believe popular opinion, media reports, the shouts of the mob, the jabs from the critics, the strength of the walls, or the personal experiences of the past. Faith doesn't bow the knee to the wicked decrees of a pagan pharaoh. Faith believes God's word and lives accordingly. The activity of faith is to worship God and walk with him and obey him in accordance with all of his instructions and promises. So far, we have pondered the nature of faith, the value of faith, and the activity of faith. The next thing we need to ponder are the victories of faith. This takes us from verse 32 to the first half of verse 35. Although a few victories of faith were mentioned in verses 4 to 31, that wasn't the main focus of verses 4 to 31. The focus of verses 4 to 31 was simply on the fact that God's Old Testament people walked in obedience and conducted themselves in accordance with God's word. But as we come to verse 32, for three and a half verses, we hear about the victories of faith. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. The emphasis here isn't the mere fact that they walked in obedience but that through their obedient faith, they won great victories and overcome, overcame great obstacles. The author of Hebrews is really walking us through the Old Testament. From, from verses 3 to 31, he begins in Genesis 1, which tells us that the universe was created by the Word of God, and he ends in Joshua chapter 6, which tells us about the, how the walls of Jericho fell down and how Rahab was rescued. But now, as the author of Hebrews turns to verse 32, he picks things up in the book of Judges, which tells us about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and then the first and second Samuel, which tells us about David and Samuel, and then the rest of the Old Testament, which tells us about the prophets. Gideon conquered the Midianites. Barak defeated Sisera's army. Samson wreaked havoc on the Philistines and toppled a Philistine temple. Jephthah subdued the Ammonites. David subdued many nations, among them the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Philistines, and the Edomites. The prophet Samuel anointed Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. 
And when Saul failed to carry out the Lord's instructions, Samuel killed Agag, the king of the Amalekites. All these conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. The prophet Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he refused to comply with the king's outrageous edict. But the lions were subdued and their mouths were stopped. Also in the book of Daniel, Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known to us by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol of gold, but they quenched the power of the fire. Prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah faced stiff opposition, but they escaped. King Hezekiah was overwhelmed by the invading Assyrian army, but the prophet Isaiah spoke to him the Lord's word, do not be afraid. In weakness, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord for deliverance. Whether or not the author of Hebrews had King Hezekiah in mind, Hezekiah is a great example of one who was made strong out of weakness, and in response to Hezekiah's prayer, the Lord gave his people a great victory over the Assyrian army. In addition to all these victories, women received back their dead by resurrection. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elijah restored back to life the son of the widow of Zarephath. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor, restored back to life the son of the Shunammite woman. We ought to say at least two things about these victories of faith. First, while it should be obvious to us that the Lord is the one who granted these great victories, nevertheless, don't miss this, Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 35a, is telling us that God's people accomplished these great victories through faith. Let's just take uh, Daniel's rescue as an example. If you're reading the book of Daniel, then we learn that God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. Who shut the lion's mouth? God. But Hebrews 11:33 is clearly implying that Daniel stopped the mouths of lions because the whole context of the passage has to do with what God's people did through faith. So what does this teach us? What it teaches us is that God delights to work through those who trust him. And through faith, those who trust God become participants in what God is doing. God is not dependent upon our faith, but he delights to work through his people as they trust him. Daniel 6.22 itself points in this direction when Daniel declares, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Daniel 6.22. Daniel's faith and faithfulness and blamelessness were instrumental in God's decisive action to shut the lion's mouth. Likewise, the five men, five of the men mentioned in verse 32, they subdued foreign armies. And yet, if we're reading those passages in the Old Testament, we know that the only reason they subdued those foreign armies is because the Lord gave those foreign armies into their hand. Through faith, those who trust God become participants in what God is doing. The fact that God's people accomplish great victories through faith shows that the point here is not to exalt 
man's ability to accomplish things apart from God. Apart from God, we can accomplish nothing of any lasting value. Apart from the Lord, we can only succeed at building structures on a faulty foundation that will one day come crashing down. But by faith, faith indicating our own weakness and our dependence on the Lord, by faith we participate in the Lord's work. God shut the lion's mouths decisively, but Daniel shut the lion's mouths instrumentally through faith. God toppled the large, idolatrous Philistine temple decisively, but Samson toppled it instrumentally through faith. God subdued Israel's neighbors decisively, but David subdued them instrumentally through faith. God's people accomplish great things through faith. The second observation I want to make about these great victories is that they were won in the context of fierce conflict and vulnerable circumstances. In other words, these great victories were not a walk in the park with swagger. If you want to experience similar victories in your generation, then be advised that you might have to get thrown into the lion's den or into a fiery furnace or into a great dungeon. If you want to experience similar victories, then you might have to experience an invading army at your doorsteps. If you want to escape the edge of the sword, you're going to have to be in extremely dangerous circumstances. Is that what you want? And women do not receive their dead back by resurrection until they have first of all experienced the inconsolable grief of loss. So verses 32 to 35a are not a license to attempt to conquer the world with arrogance and ease. Instead, they drive home the idea that we will often face great obstacles on our heavenward journey, and as we face these obstacles, we ought to lean on the Lord and trust Him to accomplish great things. But there is a flip side to the victories of faith, and that brings us to, through verse 38 now, the flip side to the victories of faith is the sufferings of faith. People who teach that if you have faith, then you will necessarily win always win the same kinds of victories as those described in verse 32 to the first half of verse 35, they're doing you a great disservice, and they are ignoring the rest of the passage. After telling us about the victories of faith, the author tells us about the sufferings of faith. The easiest way to see the contrast is in verse 34, it talks about faithful believers escaping the edge of the sword. But if you look down to verse 37, it talks about faithful believers who are killed with the sword. It can go one of two ways. Listen to the the, the second half of verse 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Sometimes the path of obedience involves us in remarkable victories, and sometimes the path of obedience involves us in remarkable sufferings. In this sinful world, sinful people often treat God's holy people with contempt. It happened in Old Testament times. 
It happened in the early church. It has happened for 2,000 years of church history, and it continues to happen today. Abel was killed by his brother. The prophet Jeremiah was thrown into a mud pit. And the prophet Hanani was put in the stocks in prison. According to Jewish tradition, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about this, but according to Jewish tradition, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. And so this might be what Hebrews 11.37 is referring to by the phrase sawn in two. The world loves false prophets who tickle the ears of the unrepentant, but true prophets are typically despised. And Jesus said that we ought to consider it a great privilege to suffer like the prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a real practical lesson here. Verses 32 to 38 is very balanced, and you ought to let it balance your own expectations, okay? There is a temptation to be imbalanced when we consider the victories of faith and the sufferings of faith. On the one hand, some people are tempted to assume that the believers who experience victory are the ones with faith, whereas the believers who suffer loss are lacking in faith. The most, one of the most perverse forms of, of this outlook is to assert that if you have faith, then you will be physically healthy and financially wealthy. On the other hand, some people are tempted to assume that believers who suffer greatly are the ones with great faith, whereas the believers who experience victory and success, they must be lacking in faith. They must have compromised. They must have cut corners. They must not have been out, outspoken about their faith. They must be worldly. Beware your inner critic to assume the worst about others and don't accept the pious-sounding idea that success is bad. Frankly, I'd like the walls of some contemporary Jerichos to come crashing down. The fact of the matter is that sometimes God chooses to bless his people with remarkable victories, and sometimes he chooses to bless his people with remarkable sufferings and setbacks, and there is no formula for us to dictate how it goes in our case. So be content before the Lord and weep with those who weep and celebrate with those who celebrate. The final two verses of chapter 11 tell us about the company of faith. Although earlier chapters in Hebrews celebrate the fact that we enjoy the company of fellow believers who are running right, right alongside of us to encourage us, the point at the end of chapter 11 is that we are in company with the people of old and they are in company with us. We are bound in fellowship to them and they to us and their entrance into the city of God is tied to our entrance. And all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Verse 40 gives us remarkable insight into God's plan. God's plan is for all of his redeemed people from every time and every place to cross the finish line into eternal glory forever. Sometimes we, we, we talk as if a believer who has died has crossed the finish line into eternal glory, but that's not true. 
all believers who have already died, who are with the Lord, and all the believers who are still alive on the earth, all of us are looking forward to the return of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and the new heaven and the new earth, and our entrance into the eternal city of God. It's all future for everyone right now. And we will cross the finish line together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah and Rahab, Joseph and Daniel will not be made perfect apart from us. And every one of God's redeemed people. This grand company, moving to chapter 12 here, we're almost done, hang in there. This grand company of God's faithful people from the past and the fact that their future perfection in the fulfillment of God's promises is tied to our future should stir us up to diligence. Verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the people we've just been talking about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1 gives us the single-minded determination of faith, and this single-minded determination of faith is pressed upon us in view of a great cloud, a great company, a great multitude of witnesses who are testifying to us. The, the saints of chapter 11 are speaking to us, as it were, telling us, God is faithful, God's way is good, don't throw in the towel. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. And we should imitate their faith and learn from their testimony by not fooling around. Faith is not like an insurance card that you stick in your purse and pull out on rare occasions. As a Christian believer, your basic responsibility is to run. Verse 1, run with endurance, the race that is set before us. And running means getting rid of anything that doesn't help you run. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Being a good runner means you mobilize your entire body and life, spiritually speaking, to run. Look at verse 12. Mobilize yourself for running. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And finally, make sure that you have some good running partners. Exhort one another every day, Hebrews 3.13, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The nature of faith, the value of faith, the activity of faith, the victories of faith, the sufferings of faith, the company of faith, the single-minded determination of faith, and last but not least, the focal point of faith, Hebrews 12:2. A good runner doesn't simply run, but he runs on a path with a destination in view. And although all of God's promises are to be in view, all of those promises have a focal point in the person of Jesus. And so, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then verse 2, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you back up to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, we learn that it is only through the blood of Jesus that we have been brought into fellowship with God in the first place. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In and of ourselves, we are sinful and needy creatures. We are vulnerable to temptation. We are apt to become dull and sluggish. We are prone to get droopy hands and weak knees and we need the continual help and gracious support of our great high priest. Jesus is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. From start to finish, he is our Savior and King. He is our great high priest and mediator from beginning to end. And he's also our example. The Father set incomparable joy before the Lord Jesus. Incomparable joy. The joy of bringing all of the Father's covenant promises to fulfillment the joy of pleasing his father, the joy of winning his bride and bringing his bride all the way home to glory, the the joy of having the glory of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And for the sake of these unmatched joys, Jesus endured the cross. He knew that the shame of the cross was not worthy to be compared with the joys that would flow from the cross. Therefore, he disregarded the shame and fixed his delight on the promised joy. Jesus had perfect assurance of things hoped for and perfect conviction of things not seen. And therefore, he laid down his life for the salvation of his people. He endured the sufferings of faith, mocking, flogging, mistreatment, and crucifixion. But through these very things, he won the victories of faith. He conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of the accuser, quenched the power of death, and put Satan's army to flight. Now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and from that place of power, he is steadfast to leverage his unlimited sovereign authority to rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now that you have heard this exposition of biblical faith from Hebrews 11, 1 to 12, 2, I simply want to ask you a question. Is, is this true, biblical, saving, and lively faith present and operational in your heart and your life? If it is, then let your faith have its full effect in a life of holiness, obedience, and diligence in staying near to the Lord. But if you're here this morning and you know that the description given is most certainly not true in your case, you're bankrupt, you don't have this lively faith within you, then I advise you to be troubled 
restless and out of sorts until you have made Jesus the sure and steady anchor of your soul. He is the only anchor that will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us with your almighty power. We pray that you would cause faith to flourish and bear good fruit in and through this congregation, that the name of Jesus might be glorified in the Oxford Hills. Father, I pray for those who are outside of the faith, that your holy truth would pierce their hearts and make them restless until they rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.